Alright, Fitoplasm episode 109, The Running Man by Richard Bachman, aka Stephen King, and also the film of the same name, uh, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, the problem with SF adaptations from the 1980s is that you forget some of them weren't adapted from Philip K. Dick novels. Anyway, um, The Running Man is one of Stephen King's early novels written under the Richard Bachman pseudonym, published in 1982 and collected in the Bachman books in 1985, after Stephen King was outed as being Richard Bachman. I saw the Schwarzenegger movies in the 80s, you know, released in 1987, uh, but I only read the book in the late 90s because I think it's my partner's copy, and it has Roadwork, The Long Walk, Rage, and The Running Man in it, although the anthologies now in print no longer have Rage, which is about a school shooting. Anyway, as far as The Running Man is concerned, they're remarkably different versions of the same story. In the novel, Ben Richards is a desperate working-class character who turns to the games as a way to support his family, but in the film, Ben Richards is an exceptional character. He's a police officer framed by the state for not firing on civilians during a riot. And the structure of the games is similar, but drawn out over days in the book versus minute to minute in the action film. And it covers the whole of the United States in the book, as opposed to just the small, I think, 400 block arena in Los Angeles in the film. So with that in mind, I'm going to cover both the book and the film and try to highlight the main themes of the story. As usual, I do a synopsis, you know, this time of both versions. Then I'm going to do some remarks and finally some media recommendations. So, here we go. The synopsis. In the near future America, the skies are polluted, workers' rights are eroded, there's a strong class divide, and the population is addicted to the free V, which has replaced other art forms in the public consciousness. In the book, these have simply been forgotten, but the film marks certain kinds of music and literature as contraband. It's an authoritarian future that riffs off Orwell to a certain extent, you know, except the overt political messages and thought control are replaced with a more obvious class-based mechanism. You know, the, the working classes are totally ground down with very few survival options that aren't illegal or dangerous or outright slavery. And the middle classes fear and hate the working classes. This is less obvious in the film, but it is like George Carlin says, the poor exist just to scare the shit out of the middle class. So the consumers of the freebie shows like Treadmill to Bucks and The Running Man are the middle classes as much as the poor working class, and the people who participate in the shows tend to be the working classes. But it's an authoritarian capitalist society that thrives on class divisions. It manipulates the media to serve its own agenda, for example, uh, demonising our protagonist, Ben Richards. And it also legislates to enable corporations in their destruction of the environment for profit. One detail in the book is how legislation has been used to um, relax limits on air pollution, whilst the actual information about rising smog levels has been suppressed and misrepresented, buried in libraries which not many people go to. Uh, people, including children, die of emphysema and lung cancer, but their deaths are recorded as asthma. Nasal implants cost $6 to make, but the cheapest, crappiest ones are priced higher than the annual salary of the typical worker drone, and the ones that actually work, they're 30 times that. Now, this situation is barely touched on in the film, but it's the central theme in the book. It's not about a game where one person is hunted for financial gain. It's about the world that monetizes that as entertainment. So um, let's talk about characters. Ben Richards is our protagonist and titular running man, but we are looking at two very different characters. The one in the book is an everyman, down on his luck from being blackballed from employment following him uh, refusing to work in unsafe working conditions at General Atomics. Yeah, he's very intelligent and literate. He's also desperate to keep his family alive. His 18-month-old daughter is sick with pneumonia and decent doctors cost money, and his wife has been prostituting herself just so that they can all survive. 
And Richard has pride, and you know, he, he's resentful of his position. Uh, he's driven to uh, volunteering for the games just to get money for a doctor for his child. Uh, compare this to Schwarzenegger's Ben Richards, who is in every way exceptional. You know, he's, I, I'm not sure if he's police or military, um, but he refuses to fire in a rioting crowd of unarmed, hungry, poor people. So he's framed for the massacre. He's placed in prison. Uh, and then he makes this remarkable escape with some political distance who have also been locked up. Then he just tries to flee before being apprehended and forced into the games. And in this version, his exceptional physical ability is a potential asset for the games network, and he's specifically sought after by Killian, the head of the games, and he's forced to compete in the running man to spare his fellow escapees, William Lochlin and Harold Weiss, from having to run in the games. And he gets double-crossed, of course, you know, all of them are forced to compete. Now, also note that the film version of The Running Man is also a way of criminals to reduce their sentence. You know, for, for example, as Killian puts it, win prizes like a trial by jury. And although ordinary people can compete, it's strongly suggested that the show is mainly used by criminals, you know, people with an actual sentence. But nonetheless, Richards is privileged in the film. He doesn't represent the oppressed masses either in his health or his life experience. Now, the other character shared between the versions of film and book is Dan Killian, or Damon Killian in the film. And they are the show producer, and in the film, they're also the master of ceremonies of the games. And Richard Dawson plays Killian in the movie, and is very good with some great lines, uh, some of which are actually sampled by Messiah for their um, Temple of Dreams single. A couple of other notable characters are Amelia Williams in the book and Amber Mendes in the film, who is played by Maria Conchita Alonso. Both play the part of the female companion abducted by Richards as he flees the authorities, and both of them are distrustful of Richards at first, but become his accomplice later on. Although it's a lot more unsubtle in the film, you know, Amber Mendes goes from fighting Richards any way she can early on in the story to being a full-on revolutionary towards the end, as well as Richards' love interest. But they serve the same function as the female counterpart who confronts Richards with the media presentation of him, you know, deeply distrustful of him and ending up betraying him. There's a few other side characters of note. Um, in the book, the emphasis is on the underground characters who help Richards, like Bradley, who's a really smart and streetwise character who's uncovered the plot to bury climate information by reading about it in the local library. You know, he's designed and built his own nose filters and, uh, and other innovations. And um, Richards is also helped by Elton Parakis, who's one of Bradley's underground network, who comes to a sticky end, unfortunately. These are very much counterculture individuals. They, they've got a sense on the grapevine that um, the government is lying to them and they form part of a sort of uh, a tacit network of, of people who oppose the, the government and the games network. Um, the Underground has a much more cohesive presence in the film uh, and the leader, Mick, is played by Mick Fleetwood. Uh, it's implied that he is playing a future version of himself after the regime has outlawed his music. Um, and also, uh, I think Diesel Zapper is in the movie as well. Now, as far as the hunters go, they're hardly represented in the book, except right at the end of the novel, um, when Richards comes face to face with Evan McCone, the Games Commission's chief hunter. Because up until that point, the hunters are mostly in Richards' head, and he has dreams about being ambushed and of hooded characters leering at him from cars. 
So you compare this with the stalkers in the movie who are front and centre. You know, they have celebrity status. They have silly names like Buzzsaw and Dynamo. And they have silly costumes and weapons and so on. And they're part of the whole theatre of the Running Man show to the extent that Killian is choosing audience members to come on down and choose their favourite stalker who's going to be the next person to try to go after uh, the runners. And then we'd round off the characters with the usual selection of side characters, you know, um, corrupt and callous police, yuppies and executives and hangers-on, the audience itself. So now I'm going to just summarise the plot in each version. In the book, Richards is driven to volunteer for the games to get medicine for his daughter, Kathy, and to avoid his wife, Sheila, selling herself so the family can scrape by. The early part of the narrative describes Richards walking through the city, highlighting the despair and depression of the working class, and this narrative continues all the way through his screening and acceptance for the games, where he's part of a group of similarly desperate working-class men who are gradually whittled down to the actual contestants. And despite the grim situation and the underlining of the class divisions that mark the middle-class audience, the working-class runners and the upper-class corporate executives, this did make me think of um, similar dystopian fiction, you know, YA fiction, in particular like the Divergent series, where the protagonist is going through an initial trial just to see if they'll be accepted into their chosen faction. Anyway, the running doesn't start until we're several chapters in. Richard's task is to survive for up to 30 days to get the grand prize of $1 billion, and every hour he lives he nets another 100 new bucks, and he also gets money for the deaths of any hunters or police he causes. At the same time, the public get $100 new for a sighting of the runner, which turns into 1,000 if their sighting leads to a kill. So Richard has the whole of the United States to hide in, and he travels first to New York and then to Boston, where he blows up a YMCA to stop his pursuers, and in the aftermath... He befriends Bradley and his family, and from there, Bradley helps him further. He's contractually obliged to deposit two videotapes of himself per day in order to not forfeit his money, and he films himself with care to avoid revealing where he is. And later he includes subversive messages about air pollution and other facts revealed by the underground. His messages are edited by the network before Freeview broadcast, who and they also distort the events of his escapes from the police and characterise him as a, a violent killer. Anyway, Bradley helps him get to Manchester in New Hampshire, where he disguises himself as a priest for a while. Then, feeling the heat, he travels to Portland, Maine, to Bradley's friend El Elton Paracas. But this ends with Elton's mother calling the authorities, and once again he's on the run. He manages to hijack Amelia Williams in her car, and heads with her as a hostage towards Derry Airport, where he has a standoff with the authorities and, and with McCone, claiming that he has an explosive with him. He manages to negotiate an aircraft to take him away, with both Williams and McCone on board. While on board, Killian contacts him and offers him a deal to become a hunter on the network, and also informs him that his family is dead after a home intrusion. After apparently accepting, he takes the plane by force, he kills everyone except Amelia, who he then pushes out of the aircraft with a parachute, and... Being fatally wounded, he flies and crashes the plane into the offices of the Games Commission. Now, compare this with the plot of the film. Ben Richards is a helicopter pilot who refuses to fire on a civilian riot, is imprisoned, escapes, and is then coerced by Killian into competing in The Running Man. The time frame is three hours rather than 30 days. Um, and I'm not sure if this time frame is intentionally similar to an American football game, uh, but it would make sense. The area is a closed area that's, that's controlled by the Games Commission within Los Angeles. 
So Richard and his companions, you know, that, that's Lochlin, Vice and Mendez, flee through the zone, being hunted by the various Coltino stalkers, getting into 18-rated fights with lots of blood and gore per the 80s. Um, there's a crucial element to the plot, though, which is the runners are looking for both the satellite uplink and the resistance who are hiding out in the middle of the, quotes zone. Um, the runners turn the tables on their pursuers, obviously, they obtain the uplink codes and with the underground manage to infiltrate the propaganda feeds of the network. And once they've achieved this, they fight back in, you know, full-throated 80s Schwarzenegger style with loads of guns and explosions as they take the game's building, send Killian to his necessary villain's death and apparently bring down the entire authoritarian regime of the United States. So both book and movie are good. Um, I enjoyed the film a lot more than I expected to on rewatch. I expected it to be, you know, fairly cynical and reductive. And I don't think it was. Um, there is a note in the Wikipedia article on the Running Man movie that it was still rushed and missed some of the depth. I think it was a quote from Schwarzenegger himself. He said that, uh, you know, they, because of certain compromises that were made, they missed some of the depth in the movie. Nevertheless, I thought it was good. It was um, it was tightly scripted, and it has lots of little asides that hint at the uh, you know the dystopian regime. But anyway, um, there are some fundamental differences that I think are worth bearing out. So I'm going to move on to the remarks section of this episode and talk about those as a way of deconstructing what's actually going on in the setup. Comparing and contrasting the book and the movie really helped me order the various themes that come out. Um, and this is useful because it highlights the levers we might pull if you wanted to run a running man game. So firstly, I want to talk about the scope of the game and compare and contrast. And this includes the rules of the hunt, the legality of the kill, the time frame and the arena. First of all, in the rules, um, in the book, Richard's only obligation is to mail tapes of himself to the Games Commission twice a day. And this is a really interesting mechanism that, that forces him to expose himself to surveillance. And if he doesn't do that, he just forfeits the money, um, but he's still being hunted. In the film, it's not nearly so subtle. You know, the runners just run and they're constantly surveilled in the zone. But both of these are important for the narrative to make it credible for the hunters to catch up with the runner. And in the film, of course, the runners are wholly contained within an arena. So next we come to the legality. And, and I think this is, this is fairly important for me. We assume everything that is happening in the games is legal. You know, this is a dystopian world where citizens can waive their right to life to participate in a game for money. But this is really brought home when McCone faces off with Richards and announces that he has a license to take Richards' life. And it doesn't really change anything. But I think that Stephen King really underscored the callousness of the games, uh, you know, the, the clinical nature of them. But what this really made me think about was, what would happen if the games weren't 100% legal? It's just that because they preyed on the working class, there was no chance of ever mounting a legal challenge. You know, this wouldn't change the reality of the scenario. It might change the demeanour of some of the participants, especially those who have been coerced into um, participating as it as is Richards in the movie. And there's also an interesting aspect of the book where at one point it looks like uh, Richards is going to surrender himself to uh, an international police force. So the idea is that at Derry Airport there is, um, there is of course local police, but actually the main authority is an international police force who do not have the same 
um, carte blanche to dispatch him that the uh, United States police force have. And it's also noted in the book that um, other countries do not uh, do not support the, uh, the the way the running man works and, and that the they do not recognize that people can waive their human rights to become a uh, a wanted criminal just for um, for entertainment all right next is the time frame of the games which is um, you know setting aside the preamble Ben Richards in the book is on a 30-day clock and compare that to just three hours in the movie and this time difference is going to set the tone for a running man style game a time frame in hours could suit a convention game better and keep the pressure on really well. But um, if it's in days, you'd have a completely different mode of play and you'd almost certainly need to play it as a short campaign. And the last thing is the arena. You know, th this is linked to an extent to the time frame because the arena in the book is the whole USA, which maybe hints about how McCone needs legal support to permit him killing Richards on US soil. You compare this to the film where the arena is self-contained. It's a kind of decayed zone that is owned by the Game Commission. Um, in fact, I should mention that the prison that Richards is incarcerated in is also another abandoned zone which has been given over to uh, housing prisoners and putting them to work in an industrial landscape. And this hints on the relationship between private companies and the authorities. Um, you know, you can have zones where certain laws might be suspended or handed over to private corporate oversight. And this is something that doesn't get the most attention when people think about near-future dystopia and cyberpunk. But laws being suspended in certain parts of a city or state are part of some cyberpunk fiction. For example, um, I'm pretty sure it's part of Transmetropolitan. There, there are laws to do with what kinds of insurance that journalists have to have and where they go. Um, Snowcrash certainly has this balkanized North America where um, laws are locally defined and there is no federal oversight I, I, I don't think there's any federal oversight anyway I, I think this is the perennial question for this kind of um, death opera fiction who can you appeal to as a higher authority you know it's it's probably a feature of conspiracy fiction in general who can you trust who's higher up who won't just turn on you as soon as you try to reach out to them and in the film the runners have just been plonked into the amphitheater and you know, what happens to them is endorsed by the observers. So the appeal for authority comes when the Games Commission is shown by the resistance to be running a crooked game, and the outrage comes from the observers, uh, the audience, uh, who think that d despite how much they despise the runners, they assume that the games are at least fair. Um, now what's more important is the book where we're talking about the whole of the USA, and we know that domestic law enforcement considers Richard's public enemy number one. But the Games Commission's reach does not extend to other countries. And indeed, one of Richard's plans is to give himself up to airport security, as mentioned earlier. Um, so why is this important? Well, for a player to buy into the game, and, and by a player I mean both the characters in the fiction and the players around an RPG table, there has to be some sense of a level playing field that's overseen by some authority. All right then. So the second topic, uh, after we talked about scope, is about is about the participants, you know, the, the players, and also the other characters in that environment. And there are really four 
There's the Games Commission, obviously. Now, they're the big bad, the controlling authority, and in many ways, they're indivisible from the actual government. Now, clearly, this is a catalyst dystopia and slots into the genre of 80s SF, where corporations control the world and operate like independent states. Then there's the Hunters, who are the tools of the Games Commission. You know, this is an interesting part of the book. Uh, a lot of the time, as I said earlier, the Hunters are in Richard's head. You know, he, he's at threat from law enforcement constantly, but the Hunters, who are, well, they're supposedly armed with sophisticated tracking equipment and they're experts in tracking people down, but they're largely hidden away until right at the end of the story. So, um, you know, it's most of what their most of their presence in the story is what Richards imagines them to be. And early on, I was wondering if the hunters were even real or if there was some kind of illusionism happening that uh, you know that the hunters don't really exist. And of course, the the film is nothing like that. You know, it's played over three hours like American football. The stalkers are these cartoony celebrities with crazy costumes and everything. Okay, so those are the hunters. Next, let's talk about the actual runners, the protagonists. So something I think we really need to bear in mind about runner characters is the Richards in the book is a working class insider character who is very down to earth, drives concerning family, connections to the working class uh, and so on. Um, in the film, though, he's an exceptional character who's been framed by the state and hidden away. Now, both of these are OK. You know, there's nothing wrong with either one of them. I, I am frankly rooting much more for the everyman Richards in the novel. Um, the important thing about the Everyman Richards is whilst he doesn't have you know, the, the exceptional physical ability of Schwarzenegger's Ben Richards, what he does have is um, a strong foundation in the community that he comes from, and that helps him in terms of getting resources like uh, fake IT. And so we're talking about uh, resources and the underground. Let's, let's talk about the last faction, which is the underground um, you know, th this is a dystopia, so you have to have some kind of resistance. Um, in the book, this is really just informed individuals who happen to help Richards along the way, having discovered certain truths about the corporate state, air pollution and such, or, or maybe they are just opportunistic operators who serve the black market. In the film, though, they're actually organised, um, and this is partly so the narrative has a positive ending to drive towards, uh, you know, a positive ending that involves social change. And that's possibly one of the things that makes the book particularly grim. You know, people have been manipulated to hate other classes and distrust the runners. And it's clear that there are informed people out there, but they are they themselves are isolated. They're, they're not organised and they they have very little they can do against the state, even though they know the truth of the matter. Still, I, I think there's a common link between the two, which is... In both cases, the only way to fight the state is through knowledge and countering lies. Okay, so the game set up then. How do we gamify the running man? So I've got two models I thought of. One I call the sandbox, and the other I call the sprint version. And the things that are common to both will be, first of all, you have to find places to hide. How long is that hiding place going to be viable? Secondly, you have to obtain resources. And third... You make contact with the underground, you know, you, you need to find people who can help you. And they may include your own class. And there's this thing in the in the book where Killian advises Ben Richards to stick to his own people. And the idea that um, Ben is going to be best served by hiding amongst his own and getting support from his own people. 
And then finally, there's the victory conditions, I, th I think, in, in whatever mode of game you play, sort of. Now, is it simply survival and hit points? Is it your hourly survival bonus in that whatever you do, however you participate, you the, long, the longer you stay alive, the more money you get? So in the sandbox version, um, you just draw a boundary around the arena. You know, you put resource caches around it as well as places to explore, people to interact with. And this is more in keeping with the movie where it's a closed arena. Um, but also, the arena in the film uh, not only houses the stalkers and the killing grounds, it also has the Gangs Commission satellite uplink and the secret resistance base. And if you think about it, all the agencies are located right on top of one another in the, in the film. But anyway, let's say you're treating it like a sandbox scenario. Littering resources and resistance safe houses around is quite easy. Um, the one thing that's missing is how the PCs are visible to the hunters. Um, so maybe hiding places have a timer on them. You know, their ability to hide away characters decays. Or maybe the characters have a heat rating on them, and the higher it is, the more likely they are to attract hunters or uh, wandering monsters, as it were. So, um, slight tangent, I'm a big fan of the 2005 game Need for Speed Most Wanted, which I played on the GameCube, and in that game you have a heat score for your car, which goes up as you use it for illegal races, and the higher the heat rating, the stronger the police opposition it attracts. And there are also things like cooldown periods and safe houses for escaping pursuits. Obviously, it's, it's a racing game and difficult to translate to an RPG, but it's a really solid game model, and the heat levels thing is totally a stealth game mechanic, which is what The Running Man is all about. You know, it's not about running, it's about hiding. And another game I want to mention, possibly my favourite ever video game, is the original Thief series by Looking Glass Studios. You know, that's the, that's the OG first-person stealth game. The question is then, what causes heat to go up? So in games like Need for Speed, it's just participation. It's participating in the various challenges, uh, you know, you know, you're not alerting any one individual cop. It's more about how many people are aware that you're a threat and therefore how likely you'll be spotted and the kind of repercussions that come from that. Now, compare that to Thief, where the triggers are for each individual guard. So you don't have a heat score. It's more that guards have a level of suspicion which decays over time. So if you trigger a guard by making noise, they become alert, but the longer they go without hearing a second corroborating noise, the less concerned they become until, you know, oh, it must have been rats. So these are two different mechanisms. And the first is all about probability that you'll be spotted and then forced to flee or fight. But the second is all about the guard's level of alertness. And the problem with that is to make that work you have to have a guard present and it would be really really tedious to run a running man game by having the pcs constantly roll stealth rolls to sneak by individual guards when the whole of the arena is filled with guards and it's also a problem because those models of stealth play usually rely on a fixed map with predictable guard patterns which are disrupted by strange noises but otherwise, those guards are passive. They're waiting there for something to happen. Now, the thing is, hunters aren't passive. They're trying to find the PCs. So I definitely favour a model that has the PCs' heat going up as a consequence of bad decisions or mistakes. And it's that heat increase that then attracts the hunters and kicks the game from a stealth game into an action uh, chase game. Um, I certainly... I, I don't think this is this is a game where you should roll stealth. 
Instead, I think you become visible as a consequence of other bad roles. You know, the, the BBTA model would work very well for this. So it doesn't matter what you screw up, whether it's a social role or a physical role. If you screw that up, then one of the moves that the GM can take against you is going to be to increase your heat and introduce a hunter. And that said, I could imagine a fun game where you lay out the complete arena and then the players move and the, the GM moves either secretly or overtly. Now, Fury of Dracula works like this, though of course the PCs are pursuing Dracula, who is on the run and hidden from them. But anyway, that's the sandbox version. And I guess one benefit is your ability to have garish set pieces and, and a space to explore. So if you like to play in that mode of play, it would still work. But the alternative um, alternative to this, which is, you know, that's more of an OSR approach. Um, I want to talk about a new school PPTA approach. Camp Out by the Apocalypse really been considered new school after more than 10 years. Probably not. Anyway, I call this version the sprint version. So this is the idea. You have periods of safety within safe zones and periods of danger where you sprint between safe zones and you're subject to attack. And this is probably a better way to run a game within the scope of the novel, i.e. the whole United States as the arena. So in this version, you're going to have periods of action punctuated by rest periods and safe houses. And the action sequences will be what you'd expect. You know, you, you frame the location, the runner comes up against hunters, law enforcement, whatever. But then you also have rest periods where the characters can interact with each other and NPCs in the community in which they're hiding. So you could have moments where the protagonists meet friendly characters like Bradley and his family, but not everyone in the safe house might be sympathetic. So, for example, when Richard stays with Alton Parakis and his mother calls the authorities. So your safe houses are going to be on a time limit for how long they protect you. And your safe houses are the ways you gather resources, you know, your weapons, disguises, information, connection to the next safe house and so on. Now, if also, if you're forced to run and you don't have somewhere to run to, you're basically flying blind. So it's going to be really important that when you hop from safe house to safe house that you, as part of your resource gathering phase, you 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 know you you set up where you're going to in the next safe house and you have one or more plans. So that's how I would run it um, as a sort of daytime nighttime game like Night Witches. I'm, I'm I'm a fan of games with two distinct modes. Um, not for everyone, I'm sure, but I, I think it could be made to work. But I think on, on that time frame, it's going to be more than just a single convention game. So I have one more point I want to make about incentives. And I want to note that in the novel, Richard's is incentivized to keep running because every hour he survives means more money sent home to his family. And that's a really powerful reason to act right there. And it should probably be a consideration for the motivations of PCs and their backstory before they enter the game. Now, it would be quite dark, but let's say you had a minimum threshold for how much money you needed. Say you needed to survive for six hours to pay for medicine, and then 24-hour survival gives you a, uh, you know, you, you pay for your child's nose filter, and so on. But then, what if the network intentionally humanised the winnings in terms of the runner's dependence? And that becomes a news item that the um, the runner has now gained a reward that means a significant improvement in their family's financial stability and, and health. And then, of course, you get news networks remarking on this as a good thing. And, you know, they, they take interviews with the runner's family, asking them how they feel about their mother running and what difference it will make to their life now that their younger brother can have an artificial lung. And the games met might get to look like beneficent patrons for giving the lower classes a chance at, you know, basic human survival, distracting the population from how they and their fellow corporations are causing the problem in the first place. 
it is something you could keep track in the game as a reward. A character generation, you could write down a number of tiers that represent the character's goals to support their dependence and um, take them off as you progress through the game, as you get more and more money. Give the uh, give the whole playgroup a warm, satisfied glow of of managing to shovel a few thousand dollars towards their dependence whilst they get hunted for sport or something. Hmm. I'm going to round off the episode with some media recommendations. The first is Series 7, The Contenders, which has a present-day reality TV vibe to it. Uh, you know, what we're seeing is the network-edited footage of the contest rather than the unedited view of the protagonist. And it's closer to the setting of the novel in that the arena is the outside world, although it's limited to a single small town and the contenders will try to kill one another, the last one standing being the season's winner. Contenders aren't volunteers, but made to play the game as part of a nationwide lottery. And this is, of course, a, a PvP scenario, which would often be hard to play out. I think if I were going to run this as a game, I might use Power by the Apocalypse or some other game that followed individual characters around as a sort of slice of life with some mechanism for the various characters to follow the trail of the other competitors. And these characters are playing both hunters and runners at the same time, obviously. By the way, the director, Daniel Minahan, cites Rollerball, Videodrome and Westworld as the main influences for this film. Uh, next up, I've got Logan's Run, and that's another film and novel involving people running for their life to escape a dystopian system. Although there's no media oversight here, it's just about the runners and the sandmen who pursue them. But the mode of action is quite similar. There's also an interesting twist when you consider the TV series of Logan's Run, which is quite surreal in places you know it jumps from a dystopian society to aliens who collect various species and uh, living robots and, and other weird things outside the dome and the central theme of logan and jessica being pursued by the sandman is still relatable and it still fits uh, but it does kind of take a weird left turn uh, the last film recommendation is george lucas's first film thx 1138 which is another dystopian setting and it features a chase at the end and that chase is only concluded when the authorities decide that the, the benefit of catching the runners is exceeded by the money they've spent in pursuing them. So the takeaway is about incentives of the authorities as well as the runners. And they, they have a clock that's expressed in dollars. Um, and as soon as the, the, that clock reaches zero, every, the, all the pursuers stop. Okay, other media. I've already mentioned Thief and Need for Speed. Uh, they're not totally the same at all, but they're, they're totally worth checking out. I mean, they, they don't do the same thing as The Running Man. But for stealth gameplay, they are something to take notes from. Finally, a couple of comments about RPGs. Um, I've not played my game Vincent Baker's Siren, but it would appear to fit really well. There is an Across the Table podcast episode covering Siren. Uh, and covers it in quite a bit of detail, if I remember correctly. So you can check that out. I would like to mention one of my own projects, which hasn't really run to completion yet, but uh, I'm going to pick it up again, and I think I might send out you know, the, the next draft or, or teaser stuff to um, patrons this month. Black Mantle is the game, and it's all about worker drones living inside a massive city with unknown things outside. Now, people are born into work tribes, and that is the work that they will do for all of their lives, unless they try out for mantle excursions, which involve mystery missions outside the city, piloting mechs or, or mantles. Crucially, the characters have a TV feed back to the city, and their performance is judged by the audience back home, and they get experience points based on their performance. So it's a bit like the X-Factor cross with Attack on Titan, 
uh, with a bit of Running Man thrown in. Anyway, I'm digging out my notes, and as I said, the next draft is probably going to go out to patrons shortly. Anyway, um, I think that's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for staying with me. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, a like, share, subscribe is appreciated, as is a five-star review on iTunes. And if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, there's a Patreon. Check out the show notes for links. Music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at www.chriszabriskie.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.